episode 147, Gloved Hand. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a November 30th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about artifacts from Kansas history. The difference between a beautician and a mortician is less than you think. Join Collections Development Specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine a set of white gloves worn by an African-American woman while operating a funeral home in Wichita, Kansas. She learned the profession from her mother, who started in the funeral business as a beautician for the recently deceased. Then, we go behind the scenes with museum director Bob Kekeisen, who discusses the cultural impact of a recent meeting at the museum between the governor and the tribes of Kansas. Unfortunately, this event was 150 years in the making. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Muammar Gaddafi, the recently overthrown and historically unstable leader of Libya. Did Muammar once commission a song dedicated to the sage of Emporia? But first, gloved hand. Good afternoon, Dara. Good afternoon, Mara. Today we are discussing a set of white gloves worn by Xavier Hightower Howard, an African-American woman that was a funeral director in Wichita, Kansas. The gloves are kind of a, I mean, they're a pristine white made of cotton, and they have some ribbing on the back uh, of each glove. They're pretty simple and pretty formal. So a female African-American funeral director, that's kind of unusual, um, interestingly, Xavier learned the profession from her mother, who began the same type of work in the 1920s. Can you tell us a little bit about Xavier's mother? Well, Xavier's mother was Victoria Murdoch Hightower. She actually was a young widow when she uh, got into the funeral home do- business. In fact, it was a little bit indirectly. She started out as a beautician. Mm-hmm. Her husband had died, and there were... He was on the police force, and um, the police force in Coffeyville helped her go to school to get her beautician's license, so she came back and started her business. And then the local funeral home director said, hey, could you help me out here? And Doing beautician work at the funeral home. And doing beautician work at the funeral home on dead people, yes. <laughs> okay, and so he found her pretty skilled at this craft, or, or she felt she was pretty comfortable with it. She felt pretty comfortable with it. I personally, uh, I'm not sure I would have you know, stepped up to the occasion. I might have tried something different, but I guess it was extra income, which for a black woman in that time period, there weren't a lot of jobs available mm-hmm. for her. And she continued on as this as the funeral home director in Coffeyville for some time, right? Right. Well, what ended up happening is the funeral home director decided to expand his business and he ended up selling her the funeral home because I guess she did really good with dead people mm-hmm. and <laughs> working with the deceased family. So he moved up to Topeka. 
and he sold that one to her in Coffeyville, and she changed the name of it to Hightower. Hightower Funeral, Hightower Funeral Home. Uh Interesting. Um, Hightower began as a beautician, like you said, but she became a funeral home director. Is this a a common transition from beautician to funeral home director? Well, I I could see it happening Uh very easily. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of of opportunities for women to take on professional work. And, you Mm -hmm. know, they're supposedly good with nurturing and all that. I'm not, but, you know, Mm -hmm. nurturing, you know. So I I think it could happen pretty easily. And while I was doing research, I did find evidence that there was a lot of women, you know, in the funeral home business. Mm -hmm. Right. It wasn't um, completely uncommon for beauticians to do beautician work in funeral homes as a part-time gig. Hightower operated a funeral home in Coffeyville, but her daughter, Xavier, worked in Wichita. Uh, Any idea why they changed cities? Or even when did they change cities? Well, it was a business opportunity, I guess. Um, Wichita was growing and flourishing. Um, Coffeyville, not as much. I mean, you know, people were probably not dying. There wasn't a huge African-American population to work with. So um, friends and family had already moved to Wichita and said, hey, this is still kind of an open market. There was only one or two other funeral homes serving the black community at that time. So they said, you guys should come here and open a funeral home. And you had you had mentioned that Xavier um, she became an embalmer, but to your knowledge, her her mother um, her mother did not do the embalming. No. So no. it was kind of uh, it was kind of uh, uh, they were kind of upgrading skill levels with generation. You know, they, they, yeah. they became increasingly more technical experts on uh-huh. the funeral process. Well, they could cover all aspects of the service. They didn't have to worry about you know someone else coming in and taking care of the bombing. Mm-hmm. They kept it in the family at that point when Xavier did it. And there was also a son who went into the funeral home business also. Does their funeral home still exist today? No, it doesn't. Um, they, there was actually a fire in the, funer- in the funeral home in the late 60s or 70s, I believe. And they never quite regrouped from that. Mm-hmm. So um, Xavier retired, I believe, sometime in the 90s. You had, t- you had talked about there wasn't a large African-American population in Coffeyville. Did they sort of market themselves? Market's not a good word when you talk about a funeral home. <laughs> but did they sort of target the like, African-American community and in specifically try to serve the African-American community? Actually, market in this, in this family, in this particular funeral home, is a good word because they seem to be very skilled marketers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, they were really good at creating promotional items and um, Xavier had a habit of uh, being part of community organizations. Right. So, and part of the reason why she was part of community organizations was so she could network. So people knew who she was. It's like, oh, she's the funeral home director. Mm-hmm. White gloves are a tradition in the funeral home business. Do you have any any idea why? I mean, well, it's it's something that actually dates way way back. You know, when there were um, funeral originally when there were funerals, the families gave the pallbearers you know gloves to wear. Oh, really? Out, out of out of as a sign of respect, and the gloves started out black and then changed to white for purity. In fact, it used to be pretty expensive. Well, I guess it still is pretty expensive to have sure. a funeral, isn't it? It is. And these gloves are very nice quality, too. Yeah. But now, but now 
and that tradition kind of changed a little bit. Um, the funeral home provides the gloves, but I'm sure the family is paying for it in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. So today you don't see gloves at funerals as much because it's just an extra expense. Then you'd normally see them at, you know, really formal funerals, right. yet, you know, where there's military or dignitaries mm-hmm. or something like that. They'll still wear white gloves. Would you see, even today, would you see the funeral funeral home director, would they wear the gloves? No, Xavier was probably one of the, you know, that last of the dying breed that right. continued to wear her so gloves. So she, she stuck to a very traditional technique. I mean, her mother had been a funeral home director in the 1920s, so mm-hmm. it would make sense. Right. So, yeah, these were considered in the house, they were considered work gloves, and you weren't supposed to mess with her work gloves. So, <laughs> yeah, don't worry, I'm not going to be touching just, the funeral home director's gloves. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Along with white gloves, Xavier donated a pair of diamond studded, sort of disco sunglasses and some extremely shimmery gowns. Um, you know, they just look very disco in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, did she have a flair for the dramatic at her funeral home? Well, maybe not at the funeral home per se, but she did have a flair for the dramatic. Again, uh-huh. I think it was part of that marketing package, being out in the community. Sure. And you kind of knew when Xavier was coming. Right, she had, so. a, she had style. And she had style and apparently a big personality to go along uh-huh. with it. All right, well, uh, Donna Ray, thanks for telling us about the funeral home director's gloves. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mer. I'll change my ways. I'll know my name as it's cold again. Sometimes called morticians or undertakers, funeral directors have been burying the dead since before the Romans. Often, mortuaries are the oldest business in town. In Kansas, funeral homes were operating before the state even existed. That's the subject of today's Kansas Quiz. Started in 1855, Davis Funeral Chapel is the oldest business in Kansas. Can you name the town in which the chapel is located? I'll be back with the answer in a moment. Two weeks ago, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback joined six leaders from Kansas Native American tribes for a landmark event. What was labeled simply as the Kansas 150th Tribal Commemoration turned into a formal apology from the Kansas governor for historical wrongs against Native Americans. Today, we go behind the scenes with museum director Bob Keckeisen to get his take on this fascinating and still sensitive issue. Bob, last Wednesday, leaders of the Kickapoo tribe, the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation, the Iowa tribe, and the Sac and Fox Nation, and Kaw Nation joined Governor Sam Brownback at the Kansas Museum of History for the Kansas 150th Tribal Commemoration. Can you describe exactly what this event is? Because a, a tribal commemoration is a pretty broad term. Yeah, it's. Uh, <clears throat> you would look at the title of that and think, hmm, you don't get a clear picture right off the bat. Exactly. But basically, this was one of several events commemorating the Kansas sesquicentennial because Kansas came into the Union in 1861. And the governor has had a number of events commemorating uh, the sesquicentennial. And this one was focused on the Native American tribes that have reservations in Kansas, plus 
uh, the Kaw tribe or the Kansas tribe for whom the state is named. So you had, you know, the Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Iowa, and the Sac and Fox. Those four tribes all have reservations currently okay. in Kansas. We had the event here, as you mentioned, at the, at the Kansas Museum of History. Uh, we're very happy to, to be able to host it and uh, had a great turnout for it. The flags or the colors were uh, presented by the Watase American Legion Post 410, uh -huh. which is uh, military veterans from the Prairie Band Potawatomi. And they have done a number of presenting the color ceremonies throughout the sesquicentennial year um, at a number of places around the state. And then the part I really liked, too, is they had the Little Soldier Singers, who are a Native American uh, drum circle from, again, the Potawatomi uh, tribe. And they did a flag song when mm -hmm. the flags were presented. And then they also did an honor song. So that was pretty cool to have yeah, uh, all this Native American ceremony going on. It's really powerful and dramatic yeah. percussion, drum, music, and their singing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's um, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it, it was a great ceremony. And the event was uh, emceed, was led by Chris Howell, who is the executive director of the Kansas Native American Affairs Office. He's basically Governor Brownback's Native American liaison. Mm -hmm. And Chris is a member of the Pawnee Nation. Uh, out of Oklahoma, and he introduced a lot of the dignitaries that were there, again, in addition to the uh, five tribal chairmen who were there, and Governor Brownback, of course. Um, we had the president of Haskell Indian Nations University over mm -hmm. in Lawrence attended. Um, we had uh, the head of the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, Robin Jennison, was there. Um, we had a representative from Wichita, a House representative from Wichita, uh, Representative Vickers, who is Native American. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a Ponca of the Ponca Nation. Um, and we had various other legislators and dignitaries here, so it was, a, it was a great turnout for it. The governor spoke about Native American history and gave a brief overview of Native Americans in Kansas. Uh, he likes history. He's really good at it. The, the times I've had to, dealings with him, he, he knows his history well. Mm -hmm. And he also read a resolution that apologized to the Native peoples on behalf of the state. Interesting. And then each of the tribal chairmen got up and made brief remarks. Mm -hmm. And then they walked over to a table and the governor signed a copy of the resolution Symbolically, each of the tribes were presented with a bison from the state's bison herd. Right. And we didn't actually have bison in the, in the uh, museum lobby, but the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks brought three young bison from the state herd out, and they were in a pen outside the museum, outside the, our lobby doors there. And they had um, uh, two males and a female are about six months old, and so that was kind of cool to have bison yeah, on the were, site. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And uh, so, so they did that sort of symbolic uh, presentation. What has been the historical relationship between a Kansas governor and Native Americans? Because, I mean, that's a unique relationship, right? Yeah, because Native American tribes are sovereign nations, mm -hmm. and sovereignty basically means that's the power of a people to govern themselves. So it's like a state within a state within yeah, a country. Yeah, or really it's a nation within a nation. Yeah, uh -huh. they are their own nations, but they exist within the United States. And this is recognized, uh, or tribal sovereignty is recognized in the United States Constitution. If you look at Article One, Section 8, it recognizes... Native American tribes or Indian tribes like other countries. So treaties that are done with the um, Native American tribes are just like doing a treaty with France or a treaty with <laughs> Germany or you know, any other sovereign nation. 
So all of the Native Americans in Kansas are citizens of their tribe. They are also citizens of the state of Kansas, mm -hmm. and they are also citizens of the United States, which that didn't uh, occur until 1924. Uh, Native Americans were not United States citizens until 1924, and technically, the way the law was written, some Native Americans really didn't become citizens until the late 1940s. Wow. And there were certain states who refused to acknowledge that Native Americans were citizens until the late 1940s. So you still had a situation where you had, after 1924, some American Indians who should have been recognized as U.S. citizens were denied the right to vote by certain states because oh, they said, wow. you know, there were certain state laws and charters that over it got into a big legal mess. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. They are they are sovereign nations, and so when someone is a you know, member of, let's say, the Prairie Band Potawatomi tribe. They are citizens of the Potawatomi Nation. So the reservation um, up north of Topeka here is, you know, technically its own little country. Interesting. It's a, it's a nation within a nation. That's yeah, a cool concept. Uh, Governor Brownback did more than just recognize the tribes, like you said. He apologized. Uh -huh. What exactly was the governor apologizing <laughs> for? Well, I think probably the best way to respond to that is to simply read the last paragraph of this resolution okay. that, that he wrote. And it's uh, the, so that they had the various whereases through yep. what you do through most legislative. But what wraps up with, Now, therefore, I, Sam Brownback, governor of the state of Kansas, do hereby proclaim and recognize the special legal and political relationship Indian tribes have with the state of Kansas and the solemn covenant with the land we share and commends and honors Native peoples for the thousands of years that they have stewarded and protected the land of Kansas, and expresses regret for former wrongs and, and apologizes on behalf of the people of Kansas to all Native peoples for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, deception, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples, and resolves to move forward with the recognized tribes in a positive and constructive relationship that will help us fairly and effectively resolve differences to achieve our mutual goals and harmoniously steward and protect this land we call Kansas. Okay. So if you look at the, at the language there, apologizes for violence, maltreatment, deception, and neglect. So essentially, he's, he's, the governor is recognizing and admitting that Native peoples have been treated pretty poorly uh -huh. <laughs> throughout our state and indeed our country's history. And he's saying, you know, sorry, shouldn't, right. shouldn't have happened. Governor Brownback has been a strong advocate for the kind of the apology movement. Yeah, thank you. Um, you say that. Which has impacted a lot of other entities, like um, there's Hawaiians and African Americans. There's, yeah, Native there's, Alaskans. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. There's some other entities that feel like they deserve an apology uh -huh. or they should be given an apology. Um, why do you think he feels so passionate about this particular movement? Well, he has a long history of uh, being a vocal advocate for the idea that, you know, certain peoples are, are owed an apology. Uh, he really has supported human rights throughout his political career. Uh, back as early as 2004, when um, then-Senator Brownback was, was a U.S. Senator from Kansas, uh, he was pushing for an apology on the national level to the Native Americans and worked on that for several years. And late in 2009, he ultimately was successful in obtaining a congressional resolution that was passed by both houses of Congress and was signed by President Obama in December of 2009. So, you know, he say he's had a long history of that. And I think, you know, when he came to the state, he thought, you know, the state needs to do something specific for 
the native peoples that live here and what better time than in this sesquicentennial year when we're looking back on right. our history to say, hey, you know, maybe not everything happened the way we would have liked it to. Or, well, All right, Bob. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling us about um, the uh, tribal commemoration ceremony. My pleasure. I will not hear what you have to say because I need freedom now and I need to... I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kansas Quiz. We asked you to name the location of the Davis Funeral Chapel the oldest business in Kansas. The answer is Leavenworth, the first city of Kansas. Established in 1855, this chapel was serving its customers six years before the state of Kansas even existed. Passed down through five generations, early proprietors were able to dig up business by burying inmates from the multiple prisons operating in Leavenworth. Today, the company is still running strong and refuses to die. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Curator Laurel Fritch. Hi. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to... Uh, perhaps a staff favorite, Muammar Gaddafi, <laughs> the former dictator of Libya. Laurel, you want to give us a little background on Colonel Gaddafi? So, Muammar Mohammed Abu Minyar Gaddafi. Yes. Yeah, nice it's, wow. it's a lot of names. Um, he was born in Sirte in Libya in 1942. And the earliest known references place him at the Libyan Military Academy as a cadet. I think it's interesting that those are just the earliest references. Right. You know, it's a little shady there. We're not exactly sure where he comes from. There's not a lot of details on the post-cadet period, which right. is, you know, probably common for evil dictators. You know, oddly <laughs> enough, you just never really know about their about their early beginnings. Mm -hmm. Well, we do know that he was there. And uh, while he was there, he became active with a group of young officers that led a bloodless coup against the reigning monarch in 1969 who happened to be in Turkey for a medical treatment at the time. That's a good time to see a bloodless clue. Woo, very, very daring. Yeah. You know, the guy's in the hospital. So. <laughs> in another country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Gaddafi quickly allied himself with powerful Arab neighbors, and he adopted an anti-Western and anti-Israel policy. And he made multiple attempts to merge Libya with Egypt or Tunisia. But he was often rebuffed when the other dictators felt that Gaddafi was just a little bit too zealous. Um, I like that. The other dictators thought he was just, just too much. Just a little too much. Um, well, in the late 1970s, Gaddafi quote-unquote retired, and he went into exile to ponder theology. Well, you know, that's pretty noble, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, upon his return, he established a strange form of socialism that made very little sense to just about anybody, even to socialists. <laughs> um, but he was a very strong family man. Indeed. Yes. He, uh, he was married twice, and he raised eight children, who later assumed various governmental roles that inspired pretty much uh, general um, hate of um, from the public. Um, really? They 
they were kind of known to be like classic mismanagers. The kids were classic <laughs> mismanagers, sometimes tortured people, you know, <laughs> standard uh, dictator management practices. Well, and then just recently in 2011, he was overthrown during a civil war, and then he was later apprehended and killed. And uh, Gaddafi, he's known for being a, a bit unusual, having some pretty interesting ideas. That's an understatement. Um, that is an understatement. Uh, <laughs> a really particularly good example of that is when he decided to rename the calendar months, <laughs> and uh, he decided to replace the month of August with um, Hannibal. Uh-huh. So we'd have now, you know, mm-hmm. July and then Hannibal <laughs> in September. Um, but, you know, he wasn't the, entirely the end thrilled. The summer is in Hannibal. <laughs> exactly. And he, he wasn't actually that thrilled with July either. My yeah. suspicion is because, you know, that was the American Independence Day, anti-Western oh, stance. Oh, yeah, good connection. Uh, so he decided to replace July with Nasser. Mm-hmm. So now it's June, Nasser, Hannibal, <laughs> September. The fourth of Nasser. The fourth of Nasser. Well, I mean, too, Gaddafi, he was really obsessed with self-image. And, um, in fact, a lot of people suspect that he had plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, he wore really flamboyant suits, and he would combine them with gold um, togas. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks, Laurel. Now yeah. to the game. As a contestant, Laurel, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and brother leader Moam. You must pick you must pick the true six degrees of William Alawite from the falls. Rebecca, you wanna go first? Yes, I will, and we will begin with Brother Leader or King of Kings Gaddafi. Uh, <laughs> All good titles yeah. in the game. Colonel, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, the late Gaddafi encountered many foreign dignitaries in his his leadership role. Sure. And especially those who were Westerners who wanted to discuss weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and one of these dignitaries was Condoleezza Rice, Indeed. the U.S. Secretary of State. And our listeners who've been following the news know that Condoleezza Rice has a book out, and she's kind of been making the rounds to promote that book. It's called No Higher Honor. This is just a little interesting aside to the connection here, but uh, she visited uh, Libya in 2008, and she'd been warned that Gaddafi had an obsession with her, and on that visit, he announced to her that he had made a video that featured her visits, her footage of her visits with other foreign heads of state, set to an original song that Gaddafi had commissioned for her, and the song was called Black Flower in the White House. So the a little degree- creepy. That's the word that Rice used to describe it. So the degree degree of connection between Gaddafi and Rice was strong, at least in his mind. And then now we're going to go back a little bit in time. In the 80s, Rice worked for Stanford University as an assistant professor of political science, and she earned many accolades and honors during that time. One of them she received was being named a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. This is a conservative think tank that's a unit of Stanford University, and it's named after its founder and Stanford alumnus, Herbert Hoover, Uh our nation's 31st president. And I believe in previous podcasts, we've established the relationship between Herbert Hoover and William Allen White. But to recap quickly, Hoover and White met during the First World War and became close friends, and White developed into an ardent political supporter of Hoover and helped promote his presidential nomination. Mm -hmm. So Gaddafi to Rice, Rice to Hoover, Hoover to White. 
All right, so now my turn. Um, so shortly after assuming power, Gaddafi attempted to foster a close relationship with Gamal Nasser, who was president of Egypt. Um, Nasser is really kind of considered one of the most, one of the more significant figures, especially in Middle East history um, in the 20th century. He attempted to modernize Egypt. Uh, he also lost a crushing defeat to Israel during the Six Days War, um, and he nationalized the Suez Canal, which had been previously owned by England. Big deal. Um, interestingly, in 1921, William Alawite took his family on a tour of the pyramids in Egypt. And as part of that tour, they actually sailed down the Suez Canal on the Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. So there you go. So, Laurel, which, uh, which is correct? Um, so I think it's almost a toss-up because we're dealing with a crazy dictator. Um, but I think I might actually go with Rebecca this time around. That, and that is correct. That is correct. Woo. Indeed. Ding, ding. Very, very good. Um... Before we go on, I uh, just want to make one one note here. Um, Laurel, This uh, you'll soon be leaving us. People will, um, won't, won't be hearing you on the podcast quite as often. Yeah. Um, you want to tell us about where you're going? Sure. Um, I'm going to be working at the Smithsonian American History Museum at their Lemelson Center, which focuses on inventors and places of invention. And I will be doing a two-year project there to put together an exhibit um, having to do with inventors and places of invention. So um, it's a very exciting opportunity for me, although I will miss especially doing all of these podcasts. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to the changes ahead, but at the same time, I'm very sorry to say goodbye to all of our listeners. Well, we're sorry to see you go, but yeah. I hope you, we hope you the best in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to issue a challenge for the next episode? Sure. Next week, we connect William Allen White to Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. The first woman to hold that position, Merkel's political influence has grown in recent years as she seems to be the only European leader who can still write a good check. <laughs> Indeed. So come back in two weeks when we connect White to Merkel. What, was, what would be White's opinion of a German chancellor with a uniquely powerful economic country? Find out. Run fast! That concludes episode 147, Gloved Hand. If you would like to see the gloves worn by an African-American funeral director, go to our website, kshs.org. Come back in two weeks when Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine two mail carts used at the Kansas State House in Topeka. Politicians receive a lot of mail. In the 1940s, staff had to repurpose old fertilizer carts to deliver it all. Some would argue that a fertilizer cart would seem appropriate. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. <laughs>